Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. Today, our special guest on Trade for Peace is the former Director General of the WTO. He is also the former Commissioner for Trade at the European Commission and the former chef de cabinet to the president of the Commission of the European Communities. He is the current president of the Executive Committee of the Paris Peace Forum. With quite an accomplished career, he needs no introductions in the trade community as he is highly regarded as a global thought leader on multilateral trade. He continues to hold leading roles across several public and private institutions across the globe and is a true champion of trade for peace. He is none other than Mr. Pascal Lamy. Thanks very much, and thanks for hosting me. Pascal, welcome to Trade for Peace. It is an honor to have you as our special guest for this episode of Trade for Peace. Now, with your remarkable achievements and your current role at the Paris Peace Forum, I would like to begin this conversation with a question I ask all of our guests. What does trade for peace mean to you? Well, I think uh, the answer is that it means a lot because uh, peace is the single goal of international cooperation. History has told us that this is not a given. I mean, states... uh, Passions, interest, can either cooperate, coalize to address major common challenges, or on the contrary, fight with each other, which is the reverse of peace. And in my own view, and I recognize uh, this is one view about peace, there are others, my sense for what it's worth is that Economic development is a key to human development and that trade opening is a key to economic development. Now, not the only key. There are many other ways to foster economic and uh, social and human development. And trade, in this sense, is a tool to contribute to something that we must do together. First and second, of course, opening trade only works under some conditions that need to be there for trade opening to really work for development so that it really works for human and social development. So it's not a straightforward answer. It's a conditional answer, although overall, I deeply believe that countries in this world uh, living together with open trade will be more conducive to peace than the other way around. 
And you've kept busy as the president of the executive committee at the Paris Peace Forum, working on peace building initiatives at the forum. Could you tell us a little bit more about the work of the forum? Now, the, the, the Paris Peace Forum, which I have the privilege to chair, is a sort of new, very innovative approach to global governance, which we started uh, with the French president of the Republic in 2018, at the time where France was celebrating the centenary of the armistice of the First World War. And at the time, there was quite a lot of uh, memorial exercises, as it should be, now, remembering how much of a catastrophe it was is very important for future generations. But uh, we also decided that we should look forward. As multilateralism is in bad shape, this is a risk for peace. We need to start a new venture that would address a number of the problems we have globally other than traditionally, i.e. by uh, coalitions, cooperation, discussions, uh, treaties, institutions between 200 sovereigns, which is what we have on the planet. And the basic idea of the Paris Peace Forum is not that we should invent a multilateralism without diplomats, without sovereigns, but what we should invent a polylateralism which is larger than multilateralism in that it involves, it implies, it engages other than sovereigns in acting to produce impacts on issues that we globally have to solve together. So it's a sort of bottom-up approach to global governance, focused on a series of challenges such as environment, economic development, cultural development, uh, the whole area of the digital uh, global system we need uh, in order to move forward digitalization in a fair way. So it's, it's a new attempt. And what we do is for most of the activity of the Paris Peace Forum, we select uh, projects which are brought to the table by uh, NGOs, by businesses, sometimes by countries, by sub-national entities such as cities or regions, by big academic institutions, and they coalesce together to get things done. And in a way, our motto is that with the Paris Peace Forum, we have a shorter track to global impact than by normal diplomatic, multilateral, institutional, treaty-based approaches. Again, not that we want to dispense from the sovereigns. This is a major component of political legitimacy everywhere on this planet. But we have to find more efficient ways, quicker, faster. And the reality is that there sometimes is a lot of energy, of goodwill, of capacity to engage in non-traditional stakeholders of international life than there is with sovereigns who are, as we all know, very often locked uh, into uh, positions which they have a very, very hard time to change. So it's about making sure that a new peace-building approach to solving our problems is inaugurated. That's the Paris Peace Forum in a nutshell. 
Thank you, Pascal. Now, I would like us to, to talk a little bit about the pandemic and the effect it is having on the LDCs particularly. Uh, as you know, a recent report by the WTO showed that LDCs are hit the hardest uh, with the trade downturn due to the pandemic. And a recent uh, ONCTAD report says LDCs are being pushed over the edge, pushing 32 million people into extreme poverty. With many of these economies being commodity-driven, these countries' fragility increases their risk of conflict. Having served two terms as Director General of the WTO, how do you see the role of the multilateral trading system evolving in post-pandemic economic recovery and peace building in LDCs? Well, I mean, this, this pandemic, in my view, is a perfect uh, illustration of the uh, version of globalization we have. On the one side, it took only one year to uh, find uh, vaccines with a formidable cooperation and competition among uh, scientists and the pharma industry. So that's the side of globalization uh, which shows how effective it can be in mobilizing various energies to a specific goal. But on the other side, it's obvious that once a vaccine has been found, the capacity to distribute it fairly is not there. And that's the picture of a globalization I have often described as being efficient on the one side and painful on the other side. And in this precise case, we know already that this virus will have divided our world in a big way. The post-COVID world, whenever we get there, uh, is a world where inequalities will have grown bigger, both at local level and globally, and it will increase a north-south divide in hitting least developed countries proportionally more in terms of economic and social uh, impact. So this is a major question. A number of international conversations, uh, G7, G20, uh, IMF, uh, World Bank, are working on that. I'm involved in part of the discussions at Chair of the Paris Peace Forum. So the big question is how much money can be mobilized in order to help a number of developing countries can trade be a contribution to that, of course, of course. And the first thing I think we need to do trade-wise is uh, keep trade open. As usual, in order to maximize the contribution of trade to uh, economic uh, growth, uh, we have one, to keep trade open, and two, to keep opening trade. Keeping trade open for the moment is the urgency. I think it also reveals that in a number of areas, and notably health-wise, uh, we have a big gap in capacity to produce uh, medicines in general, medical equipment, not only COVID vaccines, which is obvious. I mean, we are nearing the verge at the time when I'm speaking, we are nearing the verge of a global vaccine apartheid. 
And I'm, for instance, working quite a lot at the Paris Peace Forum with the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, for instance, to increase the amount of a vaccine that should be available, at least for vaccination of uh, frontline health workers in Africa. And I think, by the way, the new uh, DG of the WTO, she was uh, the, uh, the boss of Gavi before she was elected, I think is doing the right thing in trying to combine what always has to be combined in order for trade to work, which is opening trade and increasing the capacity of countries to benefit from this opening trade, which obviously has a lot to do with supply. If you want trade opening to work for developing countries, A, you need fairness in the rules of trade, but you also need to help them increasing their capacity to trade, which was the origin of the uh, Aid for Trade initiative uh, I took uh, uh, when I was elected uh, DG of WTO. Speaking of Aid for Trade, this is an initiative started uh, under your leadership that continues to positively impact LDCs 15 years later. How do you see the initiative evolving to building the capacity of LDCs to deal with the shocks of the COVID-19 pandemic? It's fine to open trade, but if countries are not in a position to benefit from this trade opening that should help them deploying their comparative advantages, then it remains a theory. So WTO is about making trade open. Aid for Trade was about making trade happen. And the difference between open and happen is the capacity (laughs) to produce. I think this remains valid. It has, and it now has to expand into areas which at the time were not uh, as visible as today. For instance, the health production capacity, which I think now comes at the forefront of the part of the supply that needs to be built or reinforced, depending on countries. But I think this sort of first layer now needs to be complemented by a second layer, which is uh, helping developing countries matching what is becoming and will become, in my view, the main obstacle to trade in the future, which are uh, regulatory prescriptions uh, which have to do with what I call precautionism. Protectionism is when you protect your producers from foreign competition, and this is a problem. Precautionism is when you protect your people from risks, and this is another problem. The reality being that while you can address a part of what trade benefits should be brought to developing countries through capacity building, if they produce goods or services, but mostly goods, that do not match the increasing precautionary level of production, whether it's about standards for food, whether it's about green conformity, whether it's about certification processes, I think this is now the part of obstacle to trade which are growing a big way. I don't agree with most economists who believe that 
these are just non-tariff barriers to trade that replace barriers to trade. I think they have a very different logic. Yet, yet, if I'm an African uh, exporter of flowers, I have zero tariff to export in Europe, uh, but my flowers uh, will not cross the border if they don't match a maximum pesticide residue. And not matching this maximum pesticide residue is as if the tariff was a thousand percent. I think this is now an area where aid for trade needs to morph, needs to develop. And by the way, this is, I believe, what has been done, for instance, uh, by the International Trade Center for the last uh, uh, five or six years. They have progressively shifted their attention to helping developing countries identifying and matching the standards without which trade will not flow. And the big problem on this is that there are legitimate reasons for establishing regulatory standards on food safety or security of lighters. And this is not traditional protectionism. And in this sense, we need to relook at aid for trade in order to factor in these uh, new developments in my view. Pascal, you've highlighted some of the technical barriers to trade that get in the way of LDC's ability to access global value chains. I would like us now to turn to regional economic integration in the context of the African Continental Free Trade Area, the AFCFTA. As the former Director General of the WTO, how do you see the role of the WTO in supporting peace and economic prosperity through the AFCFTA implementation? Global, regional, continental, bilateral trade opening have to work together and they do work together. On this, and I've always said that, I'm with the Chinese proverb, uh, which is don't mind the color of the cat, provided it catches mice. So don't mind the way you tackle obstacles to trade, do it. And I think that's roughly what has happened. And there is, for various reasons, more synergies than problems in working on these different tracks. So regional integration is a good way to open trade. And of course, there is one place on this planet which, for historical reasons, has been much more fractured into 50 nations uh, roughly than other continents, which is Africa. Uh, If you look at this planet from the moon, the place where the proportion of small countries is the largest is Africa. In a 21st century where we know food well, and that has been from the origins of capitalism at the end of the Middle Ages, that economies of scale are a huge contributor to economic efficiency. So Africa has to integrate economy-wise, trade-wise, starting from a situation where colonialism left it with uh, too many nation states. This is starting. It's not there. It started with the signing of this uh, African uh, continental free trade area, which is still something that needs to be done. And in my view, 
and I'm speaking there with my uh, experience in Europe, of how starting from a much more open trade context when we started moving to the internal market in 85 for 1992, it took us Europeans roughly 25 years to move to a I mean, reasonably efficient level of economic and trade integration. So let's assume there's more energy to do that in Africa. Uh, let's assume uh, that we've learned the lessons in the past. To be frank, I'd be surprised if the African continental free trade was not a reality, was a reality before 10 or 15 years from now. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. It does, because this is to be done step by step, while recognizing something which, in my view, has not yet appeared as it should, which is that this inevitably will lead to some sort of specialization. And how do you deal with the Schumpeterian part of trade opening, which increases uh, competition with domestic producers from continental foreign producers that are more efficient? It's something which I think really needs to be looked at a bit more carefully than it has been done for the past. Uh, I think it's, it's a great endeavor. I think there will be a lot of aid for trade to deploy within the African continent, within the regional economic communities to get there. So you cannot, in the 21st century, uh, only trade 15 or 20 percent uh, with your neighbors. And we know that in Africa, uh, the number is subject to some statistical uh, caution. Uh, given the huge part of informal trade, which formal trade, yes. a lot, by the way. So I think that's the way to go. The road will be bumpy, and it needs serious support from various quarters. Now, in your farewell statement to the WTO General Council in 2013, you stated that trade openness and reduction of trade barriers are essential to prompting growth, fostering sustainable development, reducing poverty and creating jobs while ultimately working towards peace and stability. What do you believe needs to be done to achieve peace and stability more effectively, particularly in those hotspots uh, across the continent in Africa and, and other locations? When I gave this uh, farewell speech in uh, July 2013, I had already written a book about what I was meaning by trade opening is the way to go, but it's not automatic. You have to meet a number of conditions for trade opening to work for welfare. The book I published the day I left WTO, because I couldn't, uh, I had no freedom of speech before, was called the Geneva Consensus. You have to meet a number of conditions in order for trade to contribute to economic development, including from least or poorer countries in establishing a fair enough level playing field. This is true for poorer countries vis-a-vis -vis richer countries. This is true vis-a-vis -vis, uh, US, uh, China, and Europe. It has to go in the direction, I think, is pretty clear now, 
after the SDG generation of making trade more green and more conducive to sustainable development. So there are many areas where conditions have to be met. But if I had to answer your question uh, in a simple sentence, I would say, if you want trade to work, you have to get rid of borders. You have to get rid of borders in a physical sense, because this is the real way trade is open. But you have also get rid of borders in a symbolic way, in a mental way. I know that this may seem uh, a bit strange in COVID uh, times, uh, where nation states had a sort of a reflex reaction to close their borders at, uh, by the way, reasonably uh, doubtful results if I look at, uh, at uh, scientific studies. But we, we have to know that given the problems we have to cope with together, openness is the way to go. And in this sense, trade openness is only one of the many tracks, one of the many roads to a more general openness, which has to do with understanding uh, and with being able to live together in the same world with understandably different collective preferences on a number of issues. And I think history has shown that trade is a lever for this to happen. Absolutely. Thank you, Pascal. You are listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. You're listening to Trade for Peace in conversation with Pascal Lamy. Pascal, now with the AFCFTA coming into force, how do you see that impacting the power dynamics within the WTO membership for those African countries that are members of the WTO? Well, I mean, at least during my times at the WTO, I mean, the African constituency always was reasonably organized. And at the risk of shocking, I would say that uh, Africa was sometimes much more organized in Geneva than it was in uh, Addis Abeba. Mm. And in a way, that's a good thing because it was about concrete things and not general discussions. So if you take the African group, if you take uh, what at the time was the G90 group, if you take the developed countries group, Africa always was a major engine of these questions. And you know that in WTO, given the weight of a few big elephants like US, China, and EU, you need coalitions to get things done. So I hope that as the African trade and economic integration moves forward, which I repeat, at the end of the day, should be more explicitly about getting rid of borders than is the case for the moment. Mm. I think the, this dynamic will work. And if we are correct in believing that trade integration and economic integration in Africa is the way to foster growth, and we know that 
I mean, geopolitically, geoeconomically, the real problem in Africa is the race between economic development and demographic development. I think this should contribute to strengthening, strengthening the size of African economies and hence their influence around the WTO table. But again, don't underestimate how well, in many respects, Africa has been organized in WTO, probably better than in other fora. Now, one of the ways the Trade for Peace program seeks to bring together the trade, peace, and humanitarian communities is through collaborative research. Based on your experiences as a former DG of the WTO, how do you think collaboration can be enhanced to advance research and policymaking? Well, I think you're absolutely right that this has a lot to do with a serious, declustered economic trade research. If I look at what I tried to do with uh, some success, although probably not as much as I would have wished, in, for instance, bringing together the trade and the environment communities uh, when I was DG WTO, you have, as a DG, to be bold enough to take this sort of initiative. At the time, we decided to have a joint WTO UNEP, big theoretical serious contribution to how to make trade and environment work better together. Now, I knew that in doing this, I would ruffle a few feathers. And by the way, I was right because I was asked at the General Council, and I will not name the countries who asked these questions, where did you get the bloody mandate to do this? I mean, there are things written in this report which my country would not agree with. Oh, fine, fine. So I think this is the way to go. And if I take a parallel uh, between what was done and is now being done more permanently between WTO and the sort of green part of world governance, we could do exactly the same on human rights or on the social impact of trade opening. And this is something which is in the hands of the DG. Of course, of course, you have to be uh, careful. Uh, You cannot ruffle too many feathers in the same time or too often the feathers of this constituency. And this is a matter of political judgment. But I totally agree that this is the way to go while recognizing that, I mean, the UN system must be the one sort of framing all this. The UN system must be complemented uh, by other institutions. Thank you, Pascal. Now, I would like to us to talk a little bit about accession. I would like to know uh, your views on the role of the accession process in contributing to peace building in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Well, I think my answer goes back to to the fundamental point, which is about the benefits, the conditional benefits of trade opening. In that, it happens if trade is run, regulated, disciplined in a way that levels the playing field in a fair way. But it also happens, and we uh, already uh, mentioned this about AFA trade, if countries do the necessary reforms and take the necessary steps 
to make their economic uh, uh, system in a position to benefit from trade opening. And I remember food well uh, conversation I had at the time when I was EU trade commissioner with the then Chinese prime minister with whom I was uh, negotiating terms of China accession, uh, and part of our conversation was about explaining to me, on the one side, how much China needed to join WTO to increase its capacity to reform itself, and how much some of the things which we were asking China to do in order to join were beyond his political capacity. Mm. So, in many ways, and that's, I think, our common experience, if you look at what WTO accession is about, it's mostly about domestic reform, about a domestic roadmap of how to get there. And this is inevitably politically the most sensitive part. If I look, for instance, at accession processes that have taken an extraordinary long time, like uh, Ethiopia, for instance, I know full well that the reasons why it wasn't shorter was because of fundamental political problems that couldn't be solved or that were on the way to accession. Of course, the good thing in political terms is that it is a painful process, but which you can explain to your people has a price. And the price is getting into this organization who provides you with a sort of collective uh, insurance policy against protectionism. Uh, so talking to your people and saying, we have to do that, not so much because WTO asked us to do that, but because once we are members of the club, we will have benefits which we, not, we do not have for the moment. The sort of political dynamism, which the sort of legitimacy of the difficulty of reforms, I think, uh, works. And this is why, and this is why, in my view, accession to WTO remains the sort of main driver of a number of poor countries upgrading their system. And I think if you compare the situation to where it was 30 years ago, 30 years ago, it was about the IMF telling you, if you want money, you have to do this, 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 and this, and this. I think this has changed. And by the way, a few of us made sure uh, around the 205 years that the distribution of roads in promoting growth between the IMF, the World Bank, and the WTO would be reshuffled with sort of more leeway in order for countries to adjust to what is necessary to join WTO. So that's, that's my view. Uh, and I think it's important. Of course, of course, uh, it's not without the problems here and there. And I think we should uh, make sure with a bit of distance that uh, we do not impose on exceeding countries, uh, disciplines uh, or commitments that uh, countries who joined many years ago do not have uh, to match. Uh, and I think there is here a thing which needs to be uh, looked at very carefully. But overall, overall, I think it's, it's a good way of promoting economic reform that itself leads to development while making sure you have to do this fairly and 
And of course, what WTO cannot do, WTO can ensure more fairness between countries. What happens within countries is something which is largely out of reach of WTO, not least because if you have to decide who pays taxes and what is the level of domestic expenditure uh, for public services, this is not a WTO issue. Finally, Pascal, in your opinion, as the former Director General of the WTO, what do you see as the pressing issues that require the immediate attention of the WTO today? And what advice would you give to the new Director General? Well, I think uh, the big problem of the WTO is that it is seen as not working anymore the way it should work. You find this as a sort of a WTO has a performance problem. It doesn't deliver enough of what members of WTO are meant to deliver collectively. We know why. And the reason is that there are deep divisions. There are deep discrepancies in the way to address a number of problems which WTO has to solve. So I think, uh, and I've of course uh, discussed this with uh, Ngozi Okonjo Iwela, who happens to be a friend of mine for 25 years, way before I had anything to do with WTO, and a priori way before she had anything to do with WTO. I think her, her problem is to make sure that WTO is seen as start reworking. In order to do that, the sort of normal Cartesian uh, way to address things is start with urgencies, if possible, uh, lower hanging fruit, uh, and then create a sort of dynamism that after two or three years, people will say, WTO is really back in business. I think she's right to start with the most pressing issue, which has to do with uh, health, uh, vaccine, and uh, anti-virus uh, medication or vaccination. This is the big problem of the world today. It may not be immediately WHO-related, although I think she has explained that there is, behind all this, a trade and capacity problem, so the sort of uh, COVID version of uh, it for trade in a way. <laughs> and I think uh, she's absolutely right because this is what resonates with, with public opinion and with politics. This being said, I think she has to work on two tracks. One is uh, addressing a few of these problems that have been hanging for a bit of time, like, for instance, the coexistence of the Chinese state-run system with more liberal versions of capitalism worldwide. And this is an issue that is very important because I think and I believe that trade with China will not remain as open as it is if there is no, not more what the Chinese themselves call competitive neutrality, uh, which is in reality about strengthening subsidization disciplines in WTO. There are topics around this trade and environment nexus that need uh, to be fixed. And I think this will take a bit of time, but this is inevitable given the huge 
importance of uh, decarbonation on the uh, global economic agenda. Uh, there are issues that have to do with the reform of the dispute settlement and the way the appellate body works, and I don't think this is a big problem if the Americans uh, really want to solve it and if others understand a part of the problems uh, which they have. So that's one track. The other track, which is less uh, under the spotlight, uh, which I would myself advise, and including publicly, is that I think the WTO, the way the WTO works itself, the, the, the governance of the WTO has to be improved in rebalancing uh, the respective role of the member states and of the uh, Secretariat. Uh, I think uh, the Secretariat of the WTO has uh, resources, has capacities, has expertise, uh, which could be much better exploited if the Secretariat was given a larger role of initiative. And I think this notion that uh, negotiations can only start if uh, 160 members agree on a mandate uh, and that they can only finish if the president of a working group has uh, spent uh, and sweated uh, 10 or 12 years on details is something that could and should be improved. So in a way, I think and I hope that Ngozi uh, Okonjo-Iwela uh, will embark on something of this kind. We cannot, given the way the world has to work in the 21st century, not give a bit more authority, a bit more trust to international institutions. Member driving is something. Member driving properly is another thing. And I know the difference. Yes, indeed. Pascal, thank you for your work to support multilateral trade and peace building. You continue to inspire us. It has been an honor and a privilege to have you as our special guest. You are truly a champion of trade for peace. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. Subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. For more episodes, visit us at www.tradeforpeace.podbean.com. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thanks for listening to Trade for Peace. Trade for Peace.